Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. I am very excited to get into a conversation. Maybe it'll turn into an argument, who knows, with Ezra Klein, Vox co-founder, host of the Ezra Klein Show podcast, and author of the fascinating new book, Why We're So Polarized. We're going to try to not be polarized in this conversation, Ezra. Welcome to the show. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be polarized, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming in here for the argument, for the polarization. I'm burning this place down. All right. Well, uh, you will not be the first person uh, to have done that on the show, but uh, I actually, funnily enough, had had dinner last night with someone who was the most staunch Trump supporter I've ever met in my life, and so I'm I'm a little battered and bruised, but we'll we'll go for it. I want to get to your book, which is fascinating uh, and takes a whole different approach to uh, the belief of why we're polarized than I have read before. Um, but let's just set the groundwork. It's Thursday. You know, this podcast is going live in a couple of hours. And this week, it seems like we were talking about the election and the, you know, it must have been like 35 years now we've been talking about who was going to be the nominee and this, that, and the other. And then this week, everything changed in like a split second. Give us the lay of the land of what happened and how it happened. So Nate Silver had a good tweet the other night where he said, this is absolutely unbelievable. The candidate who is number one in the election almost the entire time and the candidate who was number two are now the number one and number two candidates in the Democratic primary. And so there's a way in which what we saw happen on Super Tuesday is not that surprising. Joe Biden was the front runner for most of the campaign. Um, he performed poorly in Iowa and New Hampshire, which wasn't unexpected, although he performed more poorly than people thought. Then he got it back in South Carolina, um, which again had been expected. And then the, the key thing there was they executed a pretty masterful series of endorsements where they had Amy Klobuchar drop out and endorse, they had Pete Buttigieg drop out and endorse, Harry Reid endorsed, uh, Beto O'Rourke endorsed prior to South Carolina, Jim Clyburn endorsed. And that seemed to have created a stampede effect to Biden. Um, he ended up winning a huge number of states on Super Tuesday. I don't remember the exact number offhand, but importantly, he won states like like Minnesota. Um, he won Massachusetts, which uh, was completely unexpected. He won Texas. And Super Tuesday was a very Bernie-friendly map for a bunch of different reasons due to the demographics of who is voting. So for Biden to come out ahead is very bad news for Sanders. One thing I will note on it uh, in terms of the way it challenged what I thought was happening in the race and something that I'm now trying to sort of rework through is that this was a very high turnout Super Tuesday that Biden won. And in fact, Biden won something like 60 percent of primary voters who are new to the Democratic primary since 2016. The idea that Biden would win in a low turnout or a normal turnout scenario, those were not unexpected. The idea that he would be dominant among new voters, that was very unexpected. The whole theory of the Bernie Sanders campaign was that they were going to execute this political revolution, bring in the kind of people who don't normally vote for the Democratic Party or in Democratic primaries. That didn't pan out. But Biden did bring in a lot of these sort of more moderate suburban voters, uh, a lot of these African-American voters. They had been a big part of the Democratic win in 2018. They turned out again for him on Super Tuesday. And so now he's back in the poll position. Uh, the big test in the next round is going to be Michigan, where Sanders surprised uh, Clinton a couple of years back. Biden just got the endorsements of, among others, the governor of Michigan. So there's a, a sort of party decides dynamic coming around Biden right now, which is going to make it uh, pretty tough for Sanders to, to, to pull this one back together. So do you think that 
when you look, I mean, it's it's funny because when when Biden got in the race, uh, I sent a tweet that I, I should probably go just delete it right now. But I probably said, true for all tweets. I, my probably true for all tweets. You're completely right. My belief was that he was going to be the Jeb Bush of this election cycle, and he it was proving to be true until you know 36 hours ago or whatever it was. And and I think that the thing that I've been the thing that I'm a little confused about is my thing with Biden was look, I think he's a great guy. He's, but he's been doing this for 50 years, and look at the mess we're in after 50 years. And Trump, you know, what's funny was I, I found this video last night that was fascinating where it's from NYU, and they took the Hillary versus Trump debates, and they actually switched the, the gender roles. And you have a man playing Hillary and a woman playing Trump and literally saying things verbatim, uh, you know, same mannerisms, same movements of hands and shrugs of shoulders and so on and so forth. And it changes the whole dynamic of, of how you feel like those debates went down. And when I look at Biden taking on Trump, you know, one of the things that I think Trump did masterfully with Hillary was he's you know she was like I've been doing this for thirty years and look how great I am and he was like she's been doing this for thirty years and look how bad she is isn't it just going to be more of the same when if Biden is the nominee taking on Trump he's going to rather than thirty years it'll be fifty years so there's a lot in there and it's a little bit hard to say is the unsatisfying answer I, I try to be a pundit who occasionally says I don't know and in this case I don't know but 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 let me offer a couple things that are going to complicate that number one. Uh, and this is validated in a hundred different surveys and forms of data we have. Hillary Clinton destroyed Donald Trump in the debates. Uh, in general, presidential debates do not lead to changes in polls. In that case, it went from the race being quite even to Hillary Clinton having a large lead. Um, and that lead only began to decline in the days right before the election and the, the Comey reopening and the investigation. A bunch of things happened that cut out her lead. And obviously, in the end, she lost in the Electoral College. But it is probably true that no candidate in the modern era has performed as well in debates and gotten as much bounce out of them as Hillary Clinton. So the idea that going backwards, you can sort of frame everything she did as losing or everything Donald Trump did as winning, I think is a mistake. And it's also important to remember that she beat him by a pretty sound margin, say significantly more than John F. Kennedy Jr., who's now remembered as this amazing politician, uh, won his race against Richard Nixon. The problem is, is that her margin is very geographically poorly distributed. So what you would need to do in for a Democrat next time isn't necessarily win by more votes, but you need to distribute your votes in the places that they actually need to be. Um, Biden's particular strength, which seems to be high among you know more moderate suburban voters, uh, African American voters, that is actually a much more geographically important uh, coalition because of again the weird and in my view deeply undemocratic, deeply unfair way American electoral geography works. Then where Sanders in this case was strong, which was among young voters and Hispanic voters. So those are those are two pieces of it. But the other thing which you bring up, and I think rightfully so, is this issue of Biden is part of the longtime political establishment that Donald Trump so effectively ran against. So one question there is, did Donald Trump so effectively run against it? I sort of agree with you that his best line on Clinton was, you've been around for 30 years and none of this is fixed, so why do you expect us to fix it now? But one thing about Biden is that he's primarily associated with the Obama administration, which for all the tumult on the left right now is held in unbelievably high esteem by voters. Barack Obama remains basically the most popular human being in the country. So the idea that do you want to go back to the days of the Obama administration? administration and Donald Trump says the administration was terrible, it was a mess, it was a disaster. It's just not clear that that is uh, nearly as winning an argument as people think. The other thing is that 
in my view, Democratic voters have converged on a number of quite risky options here. What we're going to have in 2020 is an election that pits in Donald Trump, a 73-year-old or maybe by then 74-year-old who routinely rambles, misstates facts, lies constantly, believes in conspiracy theories, says things that don't make any sense against either, in Joe Biden's case, a 77-year-old who loses his place in sentences and rambles and says things that don't make sense quite a bit, or in Bernie Sanders' case, a 78-year-old uh, who just had a heart attack and has a lot of positions that have traditionally been quite toxic in American politics. Like These are all risky choices in all directions. Uh, nobody is converging on what, what, what one might assume is a truly safe choice here. How they're going to play out when they collide against each other, I would not frame myself. I would not portray myself as somebody who can predict that with any real confidence. But everybody is everybody's taking a gamble here. Well, that's the thing that's been the worst, most worrying for me is that you, you, you're completely right. You know, you have a, a system where what I was ho- so hopeful for Three and a half years ago, after Trump won, or th- you know, or became president three years ago, that was that we were going to see someone come out of the woodwork, or some people who you never thought would be president. In the same way that happened in a very negative way with Trump, and I think Buttigieg kind of you know was a little bit of that, and we had other folks out there on stage, Yang and so on. And it seems that here we are with essentially three old white men in their late seventies, and that's kind of who we're going to root against. Do you think that? Uh, and this is the last couple of questions on on where we are in the election before we get to your book. But do you think that the is this kind of the last hurrah of of the of the old white man, or are there a few more cycles left of that? I mean, it's going to have to be the last hurrah of this group of old white men. Uh, I don't know how much older they can get and still physically run for president. So you can't, you can't do this in eight years with these people. Wheelchairs. Again. The whole thing where Bill Clinton, if he entered the Democratic race, uh, even just a couple of days ago when Bloomberg was still in, he would have been the youngest man in the race uh, among the Democrats, was just wild to me. So I, I don't know what to say about the old white men dimension of this. Something that I have been thinking about, which may or may not really be your question, but I'm going to answer this question anyway, is that the particular way in which per, specifically Donald Trump and Joe Biden both seem really, really bad at campaigning to members of the media seems to me increasingly like a way the media misunderstands the electorate. And, and, and by that, I mean this. They're both, in a way, quite poor communicators. Both of them don't think that. Joe Biden and Trump are both known for, you know, or see themselves as great speech givers, Trump with his rallies. Biden, I think, really has lost a step verbally, but traditionally has been simultaneously somebody who can give a really good speech, but is also a rambler, a gaffe machine, says the wrong thing, exaggerates, sometimes plagiarizes, etc. For people like you and me, Nick, we are media professionals. We are communication professionals. Our professional work and to some degree our identity is built upon our pretty unusually high ability to communicate clearly, extemporaneously, accurately. But we so one thing that the media does is it really jumps on politicians who make verbal mistakes. This goes back to Reagan and George W. Bush too. I mean, there are whole books about George W. Bush's what were they called then malapropisms, you know, where he would say like, "Is our children learning?" and you know, so on and so forth. But the <laughs> electorate just doesn't care that much, and I think they don't care that much because to most people. Communicating somewhat less clearly and making mistakes in what you said, not being encyclopedically accurate off the off the cuff, it's not that's not how they talk either. So in some ways, the 
communicators who seem to get really punished to me are the careful and seemingly calculated ones. Uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, took a lot of heat for this. John Kerry. Um, I always thought Elizabeth Warren is an excellent communicator, but there's clearly a dimension of her that turns some voters off. Um, you know, and I, I do think misogyny is at play there, but it's not the only thing at play there. And so there is a way in which I think that Biden and Trump in somewhat similar ways are continuously underestimated by the media because the particular way in which they're weak is a way in which if it was in our jobs, you would be fired or you would have never gotten in the job in the first place. But they are able to portray um, or, or, or convey, and I think this is true for Bernie Sanders too, an emotional honesty or an emotional authenticity separate from whether or not what they're saying is actually true to the electorate and it seems to work for them. So when you say that somebody like Pete Buttigieg rising up out of the ether, that was maybe the kind of person you know you would have hoped to, to, to see coming out in this campaign. I certainly connect to some of that myself. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is very impressive. But again, he's very specifically impressive in the way that like he seems like he would have been a really good journalist at some level. Um, this was also true mm. for Barack Obama, who was a, a truly generational political talent. And so I do think there tends to be a way in which the media overestimates the talents of people who are like good at the things the media itself respects and very much underestimates people who do things the media respects less or doesn't understand as well. That's true for Trump. It's true for Sanders. It's true for Biden. It's been true for a lot of people who've won the presidency. And so, I don't know. I'm, I would be a little bit careful about trusting our own intuition and introspection on this one. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15 for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. A large part of your book actually goes into media and, and the role it plays in politics and the identity crisis we have right now and polarization. But I, I have one last question before we get to that, and it is coronavirus. The you know we've seen we're seeing the very beginnings of it affect uh, you know not only business but politics in the U.S. and and so on. It's you know for Trump who uh, uh, you know put Mike Pence on the case. It's a, it's even more terrifying knowing that he's he's the guy running the the show now when it comes to to uh, to the coronavirus. Do you think it's going to? I mean, it's very clearly going to have a massive impact on the economy. Do you think it's going to impact Trump's chances of reelection? Very much could. Um, I've been going back and forth on this. I think it's very early to know how it's going to play out. And so, again, here, I don't want to be too confident in my predictions, but there are a couple transmission mechanisms by which it could really hurt Trump. So one is the economy, right? If it plunges the economy into some kind of global recession or even slowdown, one of the things we just truly know is that something that makes it possible for incumbents to lose, and incumbent presidents very rarely lose, is uh, an economic slowdown. And so if that begins to happen over the next six months, that really puts Trump in a, in a tougher position. Another is that the coronavirus, it could just create an unbelievable amount of pain and suffering. And so I, I was looking at a chart today, and I want to say before I say this, that estimates of the lethality of COVID-19 
are very shaky right now because we don't know how many cases yeah. are out there that are undiagnosed. And so when people – I've seen numbers ranging from, say, a fatality rate of 0.5 percent to about 4 percent. And depending on which of those it really is, it's really different. But imagine it's something like at that 1 to 3 percent fatality rate, which seems to be a reasonable guess. If you look at people over 70, that becomes something like an, like a 6 to 8 percent fatality rate because it's primarily dangerous for older people and people who are um, immunocompromised. And so if you're seeing a huge – like, look, if we imagine coronavirus infects a fifth of the population with a 1 to 3 percent death rate – that's going to be a huge amount of tragedy. And it's something I'm thinking about a lot. I mean, I have parents who are in that age group. Um, and so if people feel that the administration did a terrible job on this, and it really does seem to be doing a terrible job on this. I've been talking to epidemiologists. I was talking um, to uh, people who helped run the Ebola response a couple of years ago. Like they just have not moved fast enough nearly on testing and not just testing, but you want to do – you want to be doing essentially surveillance, which is a little bit of a creepy way to put it. But you don't just want to be waiting for somebody to raise their hand or come in to get tested. You need to be actually going out to identify the people who need to be tested so you can have some sense of where the virus is, how it's spreading, who it is spreading to. They've done as far as we can tell nothing on the supply side. Uh, hospitals are not set up to have a huge influx, right? They try to run efficiently and they run efficiently under normal conditions. If you begin having thousands of people who need to come into the hospital with an extremely contagious disease, which will also lead to doctors and nurses who need to go into quarantine or something else, that's a huge strain on the healthcare system and it could lead to disasters of other kinds, including, by the way, a higher death rate from other things is one of the examples one of these people gave me runs. You can imagine somebody who's older and is having chest pains, deciding to wait and see as opposed to going to the ER because they know, they know there have been coronavirus cases coming into the ER. And so that person dies from a heart attack. That wouldn't be counted as a coronavirus death, which is all to say that a bad response can lead not just, of course, to, to, to economic consequences, but but tremendous human suffering and even, and even fatality. Uh, and so if that happens and Trump is blamed for it, yeah, that's really going to matter. Like one way of thinking about this is if the candidate is Joe Biden, Joe Biden's chief of staff um, was and probably if he took the White House again would be Ron Klain. Ron Klain was the Ebola czar um, among, under the Obama administration and he was extremely successful at it. So the question of would you want the people who successfully ran the Ebola response or the people unsuccessfully running – botching the coronavirus response is a kind of thing that could really matter in an election? No, that's really fascinating to think about it like that. I think one thing, you know, to segue back into this media conversation, one thing that's been so fascinating to me is – and, you know, you write around about a lot in the book about the polarization of media and uh, – which I have – long believed has been one of the driving forces to the world we live in today. But just look at the what, – what I find so interesting and I'm so confused about how you turn this around is how under Trump and, of course, leading up to him, everything has been politicized. And I wrote this week about this piece about how even the coronavirus has. You know, you've got Trump up there sometimes saying it's a hoax. You've, you're, you've got, you know uh, – 
Rush Limbaugh saying it's it's just like the common cold. It's it's this BS thing that the Democrats are trying to push to get Trump out of office. You've got Fox News saying its thing and MSNBC saying its thing and so on and so forth. And my, my big worry with that is that you have, first of all, if you were to try to quarantine some people and places in the United States, there would be some people that would not not take to that. They wouldn't believe it. They would think it was a false flag and this, that, and the other. And then you have others that, of course, are washing their hands religiously, and it doesn't seem like it's a right the recipe for um, for this thing to 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 not uh, spin violently out of control. When you think about this and and the all of the research you did around the polarization of media and so on, do you think there's any putting the genie back in the bottle, or is this the the world we are now living in? I don't think there's a putting the genie back in the bottle in terms of media polarization. I I'm somewhat. I don't want to call myself more optimistic on this um, in terms of coronavirus than you are, but I think one way to put this pretty simply is that the constituency and demographic that will be most lethally affected by coronavirus is the Fox News constituency. It's people over 70. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I do not think you're going to be able to pretend coronavirus is not a problem for very long among that group. I mean, I am talking to people in that group right now and seniors are very afraid. And, and 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 understandably so. And you've seen even Republicans saying, you know, we really need to get on testing here. So I don't think this is one of the ones, whatever it was right at the beginning, and I think a lot of Trump's tweets and ideas on this have been scary and absurd and dangerous. And it's very clear he wants to keep the numbers down, which I think is leading him to be a little bit resistant to the kind of testing we need. He wants to keep the stock market high, that he thinks he can manage this as a communications problem, uh, possibly because he doesn't understand it at all. But One of the particular places the media can be effective and media polarization is really dangerous is when the reality of a situation is not that apparent. But if we're moving towards a situation where coronavirus slips its uh, reins and becomes a pandemic amidst the population, then it's going to be really bad. Now, did we get there because of the media? Again, I'm skeptical. We did. I think if we do get there, it'll be in part because the administration botched a response. But I don't think Mm. the media, I don't think people who are watching uh, TV or even listening to talk radio feel like you don't need to worry about this. My sense is a panic on this is rising very, very fast. No, for me, I think what was it was the 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 moment of of like what the hell was when I saw that even a pandemic could be could be politicized, and so I, the, I guess the larger question is: is there any putting this this media polarization back in the bottle, or is this something that we are we are for the rest of? I mean, you talk about BuzzFeed as an example of of not, of not being like Fox News but is is this it are we you know do we, are we going to from here on out we're going to have all these different polarized media outlets or um or is there a world where we kind of get back to something that is a little bit more like what existed 10 years ago uh no i don't think we're getting rid of media polarization anytime soon so so to tell the story with a little bit more historical scope one of the the things i trace in the book so the book is very much about what polarization is and how it affects us and how it affects the way we take in information and relate to one another. And then it's about 
the way that a more polarized public creates feedback loops of polarization with institutions and, and systems in American life, one of those being the media, another being elections, uh, governance, et cetera. And in particular, the media story, to, to go to some of the stuff you cover, Nick, is very technological in nature. So if you go back 30, 40 mm-hmm. years, you have media businesses that run for one reason or another off of monopolistic business models. So you have a newspaper in a town that tends to be a monopoly uh, and is running a approach to its editorial that has good journalistic reasons to be doing that. But it's also trying to create a product that is fundamentally inoffensive because in order to keep that monopoly and be able to set your advertising rates through it, you need a product that is able to speak to anybody who might go to a department store. Similarly, prior to cable, you really only have a couple channels um, uh, and it's limited by being able to get onto that spectrum. You have on radio, similarly, the limits of the, the, the radio spectrum. And so there's some choice, right? You can watch ABC or CBS, and eventually there are more channels even over the air, but there's not that much choice. And so people are absorbing news both because they want to, but much more often atmospherically because at a certain point in the day, even if you you know had NBC on because you wanted to watch sitcoms, the news came on and you watched that too. Or even if you got the paper because you liked the sports section, the news was on the front page so you saw that too. Uh, there's all this evidence that I go through it in the book coming from Marcus Pryor and others that as you roll out cable and you roll out the internet, that what happens is you enter this space of very intense choice. And so what happens now is that on the one hand, you can get much more political information than you ever could before. But on the other, the question of who is getting politically informed begins to separate by who wants to be politically informed. So the people who want a lot of political information can get it and the people who don't want it can become much more effective at not getting it. And so overall, the internet and cable do not increase the level of political information across the public, but it highly increases the level of political information among people interested in politics and sharply reduces it among those who are not. Now, the thing about people who are interested in politics is they're interested in politics and consuming political media because they have chosen a side. I mean, the nature of being interested in politics is that you don't do it because it's fun. You do it because you think this is important. You think it's important that people get universal health care or that we you know, don't go to war in Iraq or that um, we build a wall on the border, whatever it might be. And so as you get this much more polarized political media consuming audience, media begins to develop and also be distributed through, going to your book on Twitter and other things, it begins to be distributed through mechanisms that are themselves more polarizing to the audience. So you have the rise of cable news networks like Fox and then the more left-leaning incarnation of MSNBC. You have um, organizations being started that include BuzzFeed, include in, in, in some ways my organization, Vox. Um, certainly, you know, there's a lot of stuff both on the left and the right. But even the traditional ones of the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Vanity Fair are all much more upfront in their policy politics than they were 20 years ago. And not only that, but the stories from them that become very big, that get shared, isn't just whatever they choose to put on their cover, their front page, but it's what happens to go viral. So in a week when I may not have checked out the Vanity Fair, uh, you know, the the Vanity Fair print uh, edition, although I get it and, and, and love it, I might get all over my feed a Gabe Sherman piece about like some dumb thing, some you know White House off White House official said to him off the record. So you get even a more polarized version of things that you follow anyway. The editors have a lot less choice about how these things present. So this is not just like choices that editors are making. This is also the what are we all swim in the distribution mechanism, social virality, what the algorithms are sorting for, what the audience actually wants, and that's why it's very hard to change. It's not like a bunch of jerks in some room are sitting around 
rubbing their hands together saying we should be more polarized. It's because the competitive ecosystem and technological surroundings of the media have become both infected with and then uh, accelerators of polarization. No, it's really fascinating to look at it from, you know, from that from that perspective, from the historical perspective and where we are today. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You don't believe that the the technology and social media play, you know, that they are responsible for this. I mean, there's a lot of people that have written uh, that, you know, this is solely a, a response to uh, technology and the fact that, um, you know, places like Twitter and Facebook don't allow for empathy and they, you know, they allow for virality and things like But you don't think that that is the main reason that we are polarized, right? It's, it's been so funny to me. So I, I brought up the book and my read of my own book was that it's pretty grim on social media and clearly see social media as a polarization accelerant. But then Wired and, uh, you know, all these tech people have come to me and have wanted to have this conversation like, hey, look, you don't <laughs> primarily blame social media that's so great and no it seems true. like it's like a it's 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 you it feels like it's like the cherry on top it it's is not I mean, the cake. well look the 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 fact of the matter is the run-up in party polarization and just to define that really quickly that is the run-up in the sorting of the parties both ideologically and demographically such that you sort of no longer have these liberal republicans and conservative democrats and such that you have very high levels of mistrust and even loathing of the other party so you're you're really just dealing with how well our disagreements are sorting themselves by party and how we feel about each other. A lot of that just predates social media. Um, it even predates a lot of cable news, right? It begins really be rising in the 70s into the 80s, shooting up in the 90s, shooting up in the aughts. And I mean it's really only towards the end of the aughts you begin getting political communication dominated by algorithmic social media. I don't remember when Twitter goes algorithmic but, but, it, but it happens somewhere around then or even possibly a little bit later. And so one of the things there is that the, the timing just doesn't track. Now, that doesn't mean it won't be a leading driver of polarization in the future and in particular one way in which I think Twitter is really bad for the political system is that political elites are on Twitter all day. The conversation on Twitter is unbelievably polarized. And then political elites end up making decisions based on the world they see and inhabit, even if it's just a digital world. And because political elites drive a lot of what happens in politics, the mass public, which is a lot less polarized, ends up having to make or decide between much more polarized choices. Um, cable news had this effect too. One of the examples I give, I don't remember if I put this in the book or I said it later, but you know, a good example here is just impeachment. So what happens in impeachment is the editor-at-large of Breitbart, Peter Schweitzer, has uh, and John Solomon at the Hill have this sort of conspiracy theory about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Burisma and the Ukrainian prosecutor. That is not something that basically any normal human being knows anything about. But Donald Trump and some of the people right around him do know about it because they consume that media. They exist in an unbelievably polarized echo chamber of conservative conspiracy theorizing. And they believe it so much that they begin to pump administration resources into investigating it in an effort to bring down Joe Biden. When that is revealed by the whistleblower, it leads to impeachment. And so the entire country ends up in this impeachment saga, which forces this very polarizing choice of should we remove Donald Trump from 
office or not. Um, but what kicked it off was that not that the whole public was getting into weird op-eds written in the Hill, but that a couple people around – a couple political elites around Donald Trump, including himself, were – they decided to make decisions based off of that information and then they changed the entire landscape of politics that everybody else had to respond to. So this stuff can matter a lot even if it doesn't matter for most people and it can become very central in the future even if it hasn't been central to the past. But because a lot of my story is about the basic dynamics of polarization that have changed American politics coming up until the present day, no, I can't make – technology isn't the center of that story just because it doesn't line up with the timing of it. Yeah, I mean I think where I where I get stuck is I think that it's almost like um, I, I heard this this study uh, when I was at an MIT talk where one of these professors said that the amount of technological change over the past 20,000 years is equal to the amount of technological change that will take place over the next 80 years. And, and it feels like as you Based talk on, about, you know, there's what, this. What was he basing that idea on? I think that if you look at the, the speed with which technology changes – um, I mean, think about the fact that it was only 2007 that the iPhone came out. You now have more cell phones than people on the planet. You, you know, if you look at the speed with which, especially once you get to machine learning and artificial intelligence, that um, uh, that we'll be able to, you know, Moore's law will disintegrate and we'll start to uh, create technologies that technologies will create. Um, and so right now, for example, you may have, um, you know, just the very beginnings of artificial intelligence. 20 years from now, what will artificial, or what, what technologies will artificial intelligence be creating that you know that would have normally taken? I'm fascinated of years by all the stuff, do. and I've heard some of it on this show, and and I've, I'm quite skeptical. And I think uh, it's funny to me that that the timeframes they use there, because the last twenty thousand years includes the last hundred years, and one of the difficulties in the economy right now, if you look at productivity numbers and and, and others, is that compared to what we invented in in that period from sanitation advances to container ship advances to electricity, cars, um, antibiotics, that kind of thing, that what we seem to be creating is not moving nearly as fast. Um, anyway, I know this is not what you have me here to talk about. No, but, no, no. It's, but I, I, I always want no, to – like, I, I would like to be a little bit more of a believer in this stuff, but, but a number – Something like the next 80 years are going to be more than the last 20,000. I mean, maybe they're right, but I, I'm count me as skeptical. I'm not. I'm not letting that one pass. I actually hope that that it's wrong because I think that when change, when technological change ha- happens at a rapid pace, it's di- it's terrible for society. We don't, we, you know, we don't know how to. I mean, if with automation, you know, the number of jobs that could be lost, it can happen. It could happen over single digit years and. Uh, and we don't know how to create systems. I mean, I think this is why there was Andrew Yang had such a, a positive backing because there are certain people who I think recognize what could happen. Um, and I think I guess the the reason I brought this up was because when you look at at the amount, the impact that com- that places like Twitter and Facebook and uh, and and the spread of social media and news and so on and so forth have had, I think that it. It, you're completely right that that we've had this thing leading up, but it feels like it's just gone so much quicker in the past few years. But maybe that's just because, you know, us political junkies are are paying more attention, and and the rest of the country uh, is not in the same way that we are, where we're just kind of glued to our machines, uh, seeing every little beat of what's happened. One thing to note here is that we often mistake institutional changes for technological ones, and 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 they go hand in hand oftentimes, but. They are not always the same. So, so to give one example of this, 
The world political elites operate in right now is very Twitterfied. And so for that to happen, you really did need the technological changes. And I think it is simply true that you would not have seen the rise of Donald Trump or the same strength of Bernie Sanders if there had been no Twitter. On the other hand, um, something that enabled Twitter to have the effect it has had is a series of changes that were made in the 1970s to party nomination rules where both parties moved away from conventions where appointed delegates made decisions in back rooms, right? That's where you get smoke-filled back rooms. You would sometimes have these be, you know, more than 100 votes to nominate somebody at a convention uh, and move towards primaries that were relatively binding. So even with Twitter, a Donald Trump-like figure 100 years ago could never have won the Republican nomination because it doesn't matter how many followers he has on Twitter. He had basically no endorsements that entire time. Um, he took over the Republican Party almost from the outside and now very much has ownership of it and they've fallen in line. But if they'd been able to keep him out, they wouldn't have. And so – and it's I think pretty clear that Bernie Sanders wouldn't be the choice of you know, Democratic superdelegates if they were the primary ones running the process. It looks like now he's probably not going to win the primary either. But but even if he was being stronger, uh, that's a that's something that could only be true in the world that we exist in now institutionally. So there's a way in which technology is a big part of the story here. But I think it is such a flashy part of the story that it often distracts us from from focusing on other things that are a little bit less sexy, a little bit more rules and institutions oriented. And something I'm really trying to do in the book uh, is keep a focus on those big picture institutions and how they've changed and how they've changed around us because we have an idea of their stability. I mean, I talk about this in terms of the Republican and Democratic parties, which have kept the same name but developed extraordinarily different structures yeah, over the past 50 years yeah. that people don't normally uh, keep, keep an eye on. So I think people recognize when new things arise and they give them a lot of focus. But the fact that core structures that sort of look the same from afar, but actually if you look at them up close or changing, gets a lot less attention than it deserves. Can you talk a little bit about that? About the, 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 the I found that truly fascinating about the 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 difference between the you know the Democratic Party and the Republican Party today and in the past. Yeah. So, and this is a story that that, that I tell at some length in, in the book, and I think it's an important story, and is one of those things that once you really appreciate it, it really changes how you look at politics. But if you go back to mid-century American politics, mid-20th century, the two parties are not ideologically very different. So you have very liberal Republicans, you have very conservative Democrats, and functionally you have something that is really like a four-party political system. You have the Democratic Party, sort of as we think of it now, the Dixiecrats, which is a conservative southern wing of the Democratic Party, very populous, very powerful, and primarily interested in maintaining white supremacy and Jim Crow segregation in the American South. You have the Liberal Republican Party, primarily in the Northeast, and the Republican Party. And because you have so much disagreement happening inside parties, a lot of that disagreement gets dealt with through suppression, right? Um, a lot of civil rights laws and anti-lynching laws and voting rights laws were bottled up by Dixiecrats in the House Rules Committee, were stopped by Dixiecrats um, using the Senate filibuster, and the Democratic Party basically made its peace with that in what was a, a quite, I think, abhorrent power-sharing compromise. Uh, and similarly, within the Republican Party, there's a lot of dissent and disagreement. You have people like George Romney and Barry Goldwater coexisting, and they have very different views on what should happen in the country. And so that's a period where America isn't polarized because the, the liberal Republicans and liberal Democrats could work together. And the great example of this is the Civil Rights Act itself. I mean, that's a bill. It's a Democratic president pushing it. But it is particularly in the Senate, Republicans who are crucial vote carriers of it. Of it. The minority leader, Everett Dirksen, I think really deserves a, a huge 
huge amount of the credit for getting that over over the hill. Um, a higher proportion of congressional Republicans actually vote for that bill than Democrats do. So it's a very bipartisan bill. And what you see there is not that America wasn't divided or didn't have these big uh, disagreements within it. It's that they weren't sorted by party. That's a, a very divisive bill, unbelievably hard fought uh, as it as it comes to pass. But the way in which it is divisive isn't between Republicans and Democrats, but within the Republican and Democratic parties. But once it passes, uh, that rate, that strange structure begins to break down. So the Dixiecrats end up moving over to the Republican Party, right? Someone like Strom Thurmond, who was a Democrat when he was elected to the Senate, he just becomes a Republican. The Northern Republicans eventually become liberal Democrats. And as that as a pathway of ideological sorting begins to pick up speed, you also get this demographic sorting. So the parties demographically were quite similar. You had a lot of African-American Republicans. I mean, remember, the Republican Party was and is in some way, uh, if not <laughs> exactly ideologically, the party of Abraham Lincoln. And so you had a lot of uh, African-American Republicans. You had a lot of union member Republicans. The Democratic Party had a lot of Southern Christians in it. Um, whereas now the parties are very split with the Democratic Party being a much more diverse, much more secular, much more urban party, the Republican Party being much whiter, much more Christian, much more rural. And when you layer the identities um, and demographics on top of the ideology, the parties become so different that the stakes of their collisions feel and really are very high to people. Um, you're not just losing potentially a policy fight, much less losing one where there are people in the other party who agree with you and so you can rely on them as allies. You're losing um, the ideological agenda. You're losing power. The group coming into power doesn't look or feel like you or believe what you believe. And that just raises the stakes of American politics. And then particularly in our political system, where you need very high levels of cross-party agreement to get anything done, it paralyzes the system in general because what you typically need for legislation to pass is to – I mean – First, if you, you you need to get either divided, undivided control of the government, which tends to take multiple elections given how many different branches you need to capture, or you need to get cross-party compromise. But even if you do get that undivided control, you tend to need to break the filibuster in the Senate, get over the committee structure in the House, deal with the Supreme Court, on and on and on. So we have a system built for high levels of consensus, but what polarization does is make that consensus impossible to secure. And so you get into this uh, trap, which we're in right now, where you can have a lot of arguments, but you can never resolve them through actual governance. Uh, and so it breaks down the accountability loop in that is supposed to help the American public make decisions about what they want in their own government and who's being successful in governing them. So fascinating. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Last couple of questions for you. Uh, one is... Um, at the end of the book, you talk about how we should stop focusing so much on uh, on federal policy and and national policy and and start focusing on local policy and and I uh, have a guest on next week, um, Connor Doherty, who who wrote the book uh, Golden Gates and talks about he actually says the same thing. He's talking about the housing crisis in America, but um, it, I find it so fascinating that. There's kind of this movement towards that. Do you think that if people do actually start to do that, that it would change this country, that it would actually be able to kind of bring it back to some semblance and of, of being able to get along? Or do you think that, you know, it's just a, a way of kind of ignoring the bigger fight and focusing on the ones that, that, are, that are more winnable? So I want to be careful in sort of what I'm recommending here. One thing I really want to say clearly is I am not telling people to ignore the bigger fight and just focus on fights that are more winnable. 
Uh, something that that I am arguing is that a lot of people, what they're doing, and Atan Hirsch, who's uh, about to be on my podcast and just wrote this great book, Politics is for Power, he makes his point really well. There's a distinction between the practice of politics, which is about strategically winning power to do things, and what he calls political hobbyism, uh, which is basically following politics as a form of entertainment, even if it doesn't feel very entertaining. But you're not really doing anything. You're just tuning into cable news, listening to podcasts, clicking around on Twitter, sharing articles. And something I'm telling people to do in that case is that if their entire political attachment is national, they should be tilting the balance back, not no longer being involved in national politics, but a lot of the time you just spend keeping up. That's time you could actually be doing something in your community. So I don't want people to retreat mm. from national politics. What I want them to do is rebalance. It wasn't anybody's view you know, 50 years ago and it's frankly not even people's view when they deal with real political activists now. The people who are very involved locally are often the ones who are most capable nationally too. Uh, if you're a national presidential campaign, the folks you want helping you out are the people who know how to organize in their local community, not the people who spend all day shit posting on Twitter. <laughs> and so <laughs> – it's a really it's really important that people don't just put these two things in in opposition. I think they're actually connected. We've become much less capable of affecting politics and disciplining politics nationally because we've let our local political identities and attachments wither. And so I do push people to become more locally informed, to become more locally involved. I think it's a better way to be involved. I think you can get a lot more done. I think it is less polarized. Um, and also the American political system is built to have a very strong sense of place, right? Uh, both uh, at the White House level, the Senate level. Level, the House level, these are all representing areas, right? They Ultimately, they're chosen by states, districts, and the Electoral College, not just by a popular vote. And so you really are dealing with a system that is supposed to be very strong in people's attachment to the needs of their place. But as that attachment is withered, the parties simply fight over this red-blue national divide. And one of the disciplining forces on them for a long time, which is, yeah, look, I may be a Republican from Oklahoma, but I'm a Republican from Oklahoma, and we need a bridge. And so I can get this earmark if I vote for the Democratic budget, that was a way that they, they made these deals and were able to make the system work. And it's in part because people stopped focusing on what's going on in their hometowns, which are political and really do have national implications even, that that sort of politics has become derided. They got rid of earmarks. Ben Nelson was um, attacked for getting Medicaid, uh, a free Medicaid expansion for Nebraska and the Affordable Care Act, or at least trying to. And so that's just driven politics are that much more crazy. So if everybody would get involved locally, one, our local communities would be better, which would matter. And two, they would be much – I think American politics nationally would be healthier. Both people would be more effective in the way they engaged in it and um, politicians themselves would be bringing much more of that local perspective to the national scene, which is a cross-cutting identity that holds back uh, party polarization as simply the only dividing line in politics. So that would be great. But but do not think of these things as opposed. I'm not asking anybody to choose between people yeah, who are very politically. A, a, yeah, people totally who are very politically aged are just yep. spending too much time on federal, and they have like let a, a core kind of politics wither. And I think they we spend too much time focused on on politics and uh, talking about it and tweeting about it, and not enough time doing it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah. Um, all right. So last question for you. Uh, um, you you were correct me if I'm wrong. A big fan of Elizabeth Warren, right? Um, I would say I'm yeah I'm a admirer of Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. So, and you you had a post today, I believe it was today, about her and um, which and I think you know it's a she's a fascinating person. She's when you looked at her up on stage, there was a reason that for a long time the poll said that she was going to probably be the nominee, and yet she couldn't. She came in third in her in her own state. Do you think that 
it's it's that America is not ready for a woman still? Do you think that it's that, you know, something else happened in the last week or two that changed everything? It was it Iowa. Was it, you know, what was it about? Because I if you'd have if you would have said to me a year ago, oh, you know, Elizabeth Warren is going to uh, be dropping out uh, after Super Tuesday and is not going to win a single state, I would have been like, there's absolutely no way. Uh, what do you think it was that 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 didn't go her way? So there's a lot here, and I want to be honest that I don't know exactly, but but I have my suspicions. So one, I should say, there isn't so much to explain here. Uh, Elizabeth Warren came in roughly third behind the former vice president and then the runner-up in 2016. I think Elizabeth Warren had run in 2016. She might have won. Um, and I certainly think if she had run mm. in 2016, Bernie Sanders wouldn't have. And so things might look very different if she had had that attachment from the left coming out of that campaign. So some of this was a little bit baked in. But why didn't Elizabeth Warren um, pass Sanders and Biden is another interesting question, even given that they had advantages and Biden had this huge email list and the whole thing. I'm sorry, Bernie had this huge email list. And there I think there are a couple answers. One is just that the timing didn't quite work. One thing about Warren is she had this big run-up in the polls a couple months ago. And then a couple of things happened. I don't think anybody has a really convincing story for what it was, but there is a consistent pattern where people will win in the polls for a little while and then people will focus on them and they will come under more fire, come under more attack and fall. Uh, there's a term in political science for it. It's something like discover, um, examine, decline, something like that. And Warren just peaked a little early. If her peak had come a couple months later, right when people were going to vote, which is more or less when Bernie's peak came, maybe she would have won the whole thing. But all that said, I don't think there's any doubt that there's a lot of misogyny in the electorate. Um, I'm not somebody who thinks it's the only mm -hmm. thing going on here, but there just is. And something you saw with Warren, among other things, was that she did something which um, female candidates often do and, and, and have to do, which is she was ferociously committed to proving her competence in a way where she was doing a lot more work than the other candidates, being much more specific. That opened her up to attacks that, say, Bernie Sanders didn't open himself up to. And while on the one hand it was part of her political brand, on the other it was something that hurt her. Everybody who reported on Elizabeth Warren, myself included, found tons of people who you would talk to them and they would say, I think she's the best, but I don't really think she can win. Um, she always mm -hmm. had a sort of fragility in her support because there was a back, uh, like there was a, like a backseat eligibility question, um, uh, electability question with her, which people can get out of their minds. And there was a real reason for it. She had underperformed consistently in Massachusetts, running behind national Democrats there, running behind some other Democrats there. It wasn't that she didn't win there. She, she obviously has won there, but um, not in the primary, but in her own, in her own elections, but not by as much as you would have expected, given what the state looked like. She particularly has a big gender gap. A lot of men just don't react well to her. And I think that does speak to longtime gendered expressions of, you know, a lot of guys do not like a really smart women, woman telling them what is right and telling them like how things should be. So I think it is a real shame um, that Warren's campaign didn't, wasn't able to perform better. I think it's a real shame that people did not see some of her talent. I think in terms of particularly like the final few standing that having covered all of them, I think of her as by far the most capable executive of that group and the one who in some ways has been the most impressive politician. But you do need to win over voters. And just one of the things going on in the Democratic uh, election right now is that a lot of Democrats don't so much care who the nominee is. They care if the nominee can beat Donald Trump and particularly the narrative that emerged out of 2016, which I think in many ways is wrong if you look at the political science. But all it needs to be right is for people to believe it is that 
it would be hard for Democrats to win with a woman. Um, again, I think the evidence says that isn't true. Women candidates tend to do just as well and oftentimes better than male candidates. But there's a lot of evidence that people began to believe that is true, that the narrativization of 2016 made people believe that was even more true. I think that's something that um, particularly Elizabeth Warren suffered from because there were certain symmetries between her and Hillary Clinton that was very hard for her campaign to allay or mm-hmm. shake. Do you think uh, – last last question. Do you think Trump is going to win or do you, do you think it's it's too close to – it's too soon to, to know? Too soon to know. I've learned not to make predictions as far out. <laughs> Yeah, you can't make predictions until uh, until after the vote has been. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I like uh, to make predictions when I know who's won. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the uh, the saying uh, in Wall Street that uh, even a broken clock is is right twice a day. So yeah, Ezra, thank you so much. Uh, I love your writing. Love the podcast. Love the show. Love the book. Uh, uh, the book is out now. Uh, Ezra Klein, thank you so much. It's why we're polarized. Go pick it up. Don't be afraid that the the cover is a little daunting looking with the black and white. Um, it's actually uh, an amazing read. So thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Thanks to my guest today, Ezra Klein. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the High with Nick Bilton. You can find, I didn't know my name there for a second. With Nick Bilton, you can find this on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. And if it's not a nice review, don't polarize this podcast. Just go along your merry way. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you to my sponsors this week. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week. 